Well, thank you. Christopher asked me before if I was nervous for my talk. And uh, I usually present at philosophy conferences. And I assure you, there's nothing as savage as philosophers. But you all look rather nice, so I'm not as nervous as I usually am. I'm going to begin by amping up your expectations. In the next 15 minutes, I hope to have convinced you that what we do with our data upon death, with our digital remains, is one of the most important issues of the 21st century. Moreover, I hope to have convinced you that not only is this a matter pivotal to our individual dignity and privacy, it is also a collective matter, a matter of politics and power, and a matter of civilization. But in order to make this point, I need to begin somewhere else a very long time ago some 15,000 years ago, actually, at the cusp of the agricultural revolution. Back then, before the revolution, taking care of the dead wasn't really an issue. We were nomads. So someone dies, you leave them there, and you keep on walking. And after some years, you forget about them. When we settled down in permanent houses, however, this policy of abandonment had to cease. Someone dies, they're just going to keep on being there. You have to do something about the fact that there's a body lying around here. So the first Neolithic settlers were faced with the question, what do we do with the dead? Many of them answer this question by simply continuing to live with the dead. In fact, many Neolithic houses have two floors. The bottom floor was reserved for the dead, where you kept all of your ancestors. The top floor, on the other hand, would be reserved for the living. Yet they would share the same dwelling. As a matter of fact, the head of the dead would often be removed and the flesh of the face would be replaced by a new plaster face with seashell eyes. And this new decorated head would be kept upstairs among the living in the walls, much like the picture here behind me. Many scholars argue that this co-living of the dead and the living was the beginning of what we today call human civilization. In any case, it provided the opportunity for people to feel connected to their past, to identify as both a future forefather and an ancestor, an inheritor of the same cultural project that extended across generations. To paraphrase Berkeley historian Thomas Lecure, the dead make civilization, or in any case, being in a civilization is to be in connection with those who came before and those who will come after. Today, at the cusp of the digital revolution, we're once again beginning to share our dwellings with the dead. Only that we no longer live in clay houses, we live on online platforms. So the faces of the dead don't stare back at us from the walls, but rather from our Facebook walls, 
from our smartphones and our photo libraries and all of the servers where we keep our data. Moreover, the dead are, once again, constantly available 24-7. Anytime I want to, I can reach down in my pocket and a minute later I can once again hear my departed grandfather's voice. I can see the posts on various social media from my deceased aunt. They are there for me all of a sudden. Meanwhile, our technology is rapidly developing a sense of the dead being more and more animated. So this, some of you may recognize as an Alexa. Amazon recently presented a new feature on Alexa, whereby you can feed it as little as one minute of audio of a person's voice, and it begins reading in that person's voice. Meaning that, literally, you can have your deceased grandmother read a good night story for your child, which is actually what they had in the ad, which was a bit creepy. Um, imagine then what you can do, not only with one minute of voice data, but literally an entire digital footprint that you leave behind as soon as you open your phone. In fact, you don't even have to open your phone, it tracks you and your whereabouts anyway. There's an entire industry around this, an industry seeking to replicate your personality, creating a digital avatar, a chatbot with your voice that can actually chat, outlive your biological body, and have interactions with your descendants. Sure, most of these are small startups that aren't very impressive yet, but Microsoft just filed a similar patent, so we will likely see more and more chatbots impersonating the dead in the next couple of decades. This is all to say that, just like our Neolithic forefathers, we are now asking, what do we do with the digital dead? And as many of us know from personal experience, this can be a rather challenging question. Where is the dead's data located? How do you go about to access it? How do you delete a person's profile on various social media? Who owns that data? Who has a right to it? But these are also morally challenging questions. What should we do with the data of the dead? Do the dead still maintain some level of right to privacy? Who has the legitimate ownership of a dead person's digital footprint? I'm afraid I'm not going to answer these questions for you today, and I should say I'm not the first person to point to them. I am, however, the first person to point to the collective nature of these moral questions. For in the next three decades alone, about 2.2 billion people will pass away, and they will leave behind mountains of data. So the same questions that we ask as individuals when someone has died, we now ask on a collective level. What do we do with the data of the dead of an entire generation? And that's a very different question. Because in aggregate, these data amount to something more than individual user histories. They are essentially the heritage of the 21st century. They are our collective past, the foundation for future societies' relationship to their past. 
Arguably, the data we produce today is the biggest archive of human behavior ever assembled in the history of our species. And it may be the primary source of information that we pass down to the future. Just imagine if we would have had the same level of access to data about, say, Germany in the 30s or the Napoleonic Wars. The level of granularity of historical insight would be seemingly endless. So how do we currently manage and curate this massive heritage? According to which principles do we curate the digital heritage of past generations? I'm afraid that we have outsourced these questions completely to a very small number of tech giants. And these giants acknowledge no other principles than the principle of capital. Let's look at Facebook as a case in point here. So according to a research project that I led alongside with my colleague David Watson at Oxford a couple of years ago, Facebook may actually come to host more dead than alive user profiles by the early 2060s. So this is a graph based on UN uh, mortality projections and Facebook penetration, displaying the expected development of uh, growth in more, uh, dead profiles on Facebook, given no user growth from 2018. Now, let's assume that Facebook actually continues to grow at its current rates until markets are saturated. This graph is going to look something like this. That is close to 5 billion deceased profiles towards the end of this century. And as you can see, a couple of billions of profiles only within the next um, decades. Facebook's mod business model does not include dead people. Dead people don't click on any ads. So this development here is a massive concern. If it isn't now, as you can see in 2023, it is going to be in a very near future. And it should be rather concerning. I would be rather concerned if I was on Facebook doing long-term forecast analysis. This means that Facebook will likely be forced to ask, what do we do with these data? Which data should we delete and which should we preserve? Because they're not all going to fit on the servers unless those servers pay for themselves. Most likely, that answer is going to be, let's save the North American and European users, because that's what we can make money on, and let's delete Africa and South Asia, because that's not going to be very economically valuable. So the massive heritage of data of the 21st century is now in the hands pretty much of one or two companies that in a couple of decades will own digital history. Just consider the fact that one person, Elon Musk, now essentially owns the millions of tweets that constitute the Me Too movement and the Arab Spring. This is not only economically worrisome, it is also politically worrisome. In George Orwell's 1984, Orwell warns that whoever controls the past controls the future. But in a couple of years, it won't be Orwell's evil socialist party that's going to control the past. It's going to be one or two tech companies that control and gatekeep our access to our own collective past. 
The same applies also on an individual level. Because our individual interaction with the dead, including with our own digital uh, remains, also take place on commercial platforms. This means that whenever you create or someone creates a digital chatbot or avatar trying to impersonate you, it's not just going to be a neutral mirror of code. It's not going to be a version of you that just arises out of the data that you leave behind, but it's going to be a product of design. And in that design, certain principles are going to be encoded. More specifically, the principle of which version of you is the most profitable to display. So what I'm going to show you now is an interaction that I had with my own replica, uh, supposedly a copy of me that's going to outlive me and chat with my descendants and so on. It's asking me, is there anything you want to talk about? And I respond rather reluctantly, no, not right now. And the bot then replies, no worries, we can talk about something else. I was hoping to talk to you. How's it going? Did you get a chance to rest? Hey, Carl, what are you up to? Hope you're having a good evening. How's your day been? How's your evening going? I don't know this for sure, but I hope that I'm not this clingy in real life. In real life, I'm not programmed to keep my friends glued to the social media that we communicate through. In fact, I'm terrible at responding to anyone. But this is a version of me that is likely to be the most profitable because it keeps whoever is interaction, interacting with this uh, impersonation of me glued to the app. It is the version of me, I, I could probably say this, and this is the version of me that will probably be the most profitable. So in an unregulated capitalist market, this version is always going to win. And now you might say, but oh, but surely like the more ethical companies will have a bigger appeal to the market. Sure, like if you're arguing that the ethical people will eventually win the game of capitalism, yeah, why not? I'm not criticizing whoever is running this startup. I'm merely pointing out that the system, the principles that we use to design our interaction with the past and to filter which part of the past that we consider valuable is only capital. Now, I commenced this talk by stating that I hope to convince you that what we do with our digital remains is a collective matter. I hope to have shown that this is in fact so. If you're not worried about the developments that I've talked about here, you're wrong. You should be worried. But I want to end on a less somber note to be at least somewhat optimistic. Because as the dead profiles on social media begin to accumulate by the billions, so that not only individual loved ones, but entire countries and nations are laid to rest there, it is likely that people will begin to lay claim to these platforms the same way that they lay claim to the lands where their forefathers are buried. It is likely that people will begin to ask for control and influence over these platforms as the dead become allies 
in the advocacy for democratization of the web. Thank you. That was my talk.